find other great podcasts like this one at podmoth.network. Oh, hi! If you're looking for another spooky and funny podcast to add to your rotation, check out Anything Bones, now part of the Podmoth Network. Hey, Boneheads, I'm Sophie Schwartz. And I'm Caitlin Hart. And we're the hosts of Anything Bones, the podcast where we talk about bones and bone-related topics. Soph, what are bone-related topics? Thank you for asking, Caitlin. This can be anything from mausoleums to murderers, famous skeletons to cadaver dogs. Bone churches, mummies, serial killers. You'll hear about them all. And sometimes we have guests stop by and tell us their favorite bony tales. Check out Anything Bones on Apple, Spotify, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, or wherever your little heart desires. We release new episodes every Saturday. Bone Voyage! Everybody, welcome back to another episode of My Second Self and I. Hell yes, it's Sunday. That means I get to yell loud stuff about crime and possibly annoy my neighbors. Speaking of annoying, you're probably going to hear the one I call Little Other Kitty today. I moved my recording space into another room that they have access to, and she's been needy lately, so hopefully she isn't too bad today. Thanks to everyone who listened last week to my take on H.H. Holmes. This week, we're continuing our exploration of the 19th century with Time Travel Tragedies. I'm actually really starting to like that name. We're going back to England again. I'm certain they're getting chuffed at me, always coming and going and never buying anything. Sorry, London. I'm coming back over to take a look around the late 1800s. Probably somewhere right around the Whitechapel District? Yep, that's right. It's the, If the fabled Jack the Ripper had his way, the saw really would be the law. That's the band Whitechapel. You know what? I'm going to take you with me this time in the time machine. Let's all walk together two by two over this way. Don't worry, there's only like 60 of you. You know, this part won't take too long yet. It's kind of cramped in there, though. My time machine is the opposite of the TARDIS. It looks huge, but it's like a tiny house inside. It's friggin' small. It's usually just me in here, though, so it never really bothered me. Actually, hold on. Let me let me check something real quick over here on the supercomputer. Oh. Oh. Oh, Jesus, no. Oh, yeah, okay. That's that's what I thought. All right, yeah. Uh, yeah, you guys are going to just stay right here. London in the 19th century was disgusting. The streets were paved, but due to the over a quarter million horses clip-clopping around all day, there was almost as much literal horse shit as there was pavement. In fact, there was a whole job market for people whose only duty was to run out and try to scoop the poop as it hit the streets to try and keep it clean. Poop usually rolls downhill, but I guess it doesn't matter how it rolls if the hill is also made of poop. If this hasn't occurred to you yet, this is a comedy show. I'm going to be telling you a true story about some horribly gruesome shit, but I'm also going to pepper in some jokes and general goofiness to lighten the atmosphere and make it more fun. The dreary, dry, cold presentation of the majority of true crime content is just a little bit stiff for my liking, so I like to just try to have fun with it where I can. I have to be able to put some emotion and energy into what I'm talking about. 
um, very animated, even in audio format. So today we're going to be talking about Jack the Ripper. Now normally on this show, I have a general timeline that I can follow along with, but in this case there's so much mystery and so many theories as to who it could have possibly been that I had a small bit of trouble figuring out how I wanted to go over this whole thing. However, my good buddy Benjamin Samuelson talked it through with me and helped me figure something out. We're going to go over the victims and possible victims from the Ripper, and then I'll discuss some of the most interesting and credible current theories that are floating around out there. But ultimately, I think my goal here is to rule out the possibility that it was Mr. Dumbhat from last week's H.H. Holmes. So if you guys are ready, I'm going to go ahead and jump in my time machine, and I will call you right back from Whitechapel in 1888. And here we are, Whitechapel Road in 1888. It is August the 31st, around 2.30 in the morning, and there's a couple of ladies standing on the corner at the intersection of the previously mentioned road and Osborne Street. One of these ladies' names is Emily Holland. She was the lodging housekeeper at 18 Thrall Street. A lodging house is a communal area where many, many people, especially at this time, could pay for a room or a bed or a bite to eat. Sort of like a hotel with an attached restaurant, but it's way overcrowded and everybody is covered head to toe in soot and horse shit. Dusty jackets and bowler hats, long white puppy sleeves and dresses and coats would gradually fade from white to black within just a matter of a few days. This was not a particularly desirable time period to want to live in, at least looking back through the eyes we have today. Speaking of eyes, probably going to make some Bloodborne references today, so I'm sorry to my non-gamer nerd listeners. Your eyes have yet to open, I get it, but it's okay. I have enough insight to guide us through the rest of this wicked tale. The other woman on that corner was Mary Ann Nichols, or as she's known, Polly Nichols. She would have the unfortunate place in history as the Ripper's first known, quote, canonical victims, as they're apparently known. See, when I think of canonicity, I instantly revert to video games and anime, since there's a lot of debate in those communities about what is and isn't canon information. Just an interesting word to describe victims, in my opinion. Mary, excuse me, Polly, had been having a rough time as of late. She'd been separated from her husband for about seven or eight years and had taken to prostitution in order to pay for a bed at a lodging house or to restock her booze supply. She'd been staying at Wilmot's since the beginning of August, that's the one I just mentioned at 18 Thrall Street, and another lodging house over on Flower and Dean Street called the White House. Those streets are going to come up a lot, as you'll see here. Also, if you've been a responsible crime junkie unlike me, you probably already know this stuff, so bear with me. The Ripper is another one of those famous cases that I, for whatever reason, just never bothered looking into before now. Back to Emily, whom was trying to convince Polly to pack it in for the evening and to come back to Wilmot's with her to sleep it off. But Polly, being shithoused and therefore full of unsubstantiated confidence, refused to go with her. Weird. A drunk person didn't do what you wanted them to do. She'd been empowered recently by making the cost of a bed at the lodging house three times over in a very short amount of time, wink wink, sorry bruv, and was certain she could make another four pence to pay for the bed before the night was through. Only problem with this plan was that somewhere between her next client and Buck's Row was a certain individual with a very very sharp knife and a bloodlust that has yet to be deciphered to this day. Around 45 minutes after meeting with Emily, Polly's body was discovered by a gate over on Buck's Row. She'd been attacked so savagely that whoever slit her throat had nearly decapitated her, sort of like uh, Nicole Brown Simpson. 
Her body was soon transported to the nearby mortuary, where it was discovered that not only had her head almost been cut off, but she had also been disemboweled. The attacker was initially thought to have been left-handed and approached from the front, based on the injuries. Her lower left side and up the sternum were jaggedly torn apart with a thick knife, and a few slashes on the right side were still thick with blood. However, those same injuries could be explained by a right-handed person approaching from behind. She was later that day identified by her father, Edward Walker, and her, I guess, ex-husband now, William Nichols, from whom she acquired her last name. Her funeral was on Thursday, September 6th, which was supposed to be kept a secret to keep all the looky-loos from jamming things up with morbid curiosity. From the mortuary, her body would be transported to the Undertaker's over on Hanbury Street, where just two days later, the Ripper would strike again. Dark Annie! The casual crochet connoisseur within whom creeps a craving for cocktails cobbled together a cozy, comfortable compartment at a common casa at Crossingham's caddy corner to Dorset Street. <sighs> See what I did there? To clarify, she was also separated from her husband and children, which subsequently led to her downward spiral into alcoholism and casual prostitution to avoid the cost of living. Similarly to Polly Nichols, Annie Chapman was a well-natured gentlewoman who remained cordial with most of the tenants at Crossingham's. Methinks she might speak a little more freely about her own opinions than Polly did as she got into a scuffle with another resident near the end of August. You know, a loud drunk opinion could be grounds for an ass whooping no matter who it comes from, and it earned Annie a black eye and lots of bruises on her chest and head. Dark Annie, can I pay you for a while? Down that road's another one to buy your part. That one was a weird parody of a Zac Brown song. The day after Polly's funeral, September 7th, Annie spends around six hours trolling around Dorset Street trying to sell herself for some drink and a bed at Crossingham's. She'd met up with her friend Amelia Palmer on Dorset Street around 5.30 p.m. and gave up near midnight and returned back to Crossingham's. In much the same manner as Polly, Annie was a bit short on the DOS money, I think that's a slang term for bed from back then. But there either weren't many takers that night, or she'd also spent her earning on drink. So when John Evans comes around at 1.45 in the morning, Annie just kind of chilling out in the kitchen eating some potatoes. Oh god, that brings back memories. <laughs> Embarrassingly drunk, eating a bowl of potatoes, instant potatoes on the floor in the living room, because that was somehow more comfortable than the couch, which was a foot away. Oh, I've been there too, Annie. That's a rough night. And it's about to get rougher, but not in the good way like you want. John wants the bed money, and she doesn't have it. He tells her that if she can't pay, then she can't stay, so he sends her on her way to go play and come back another day. But Annie says, hey, hey, nay, nay, I'll return for my stay, and I'll be sure to pay, but first I must play the day away behind the hay. I pray today to not dismay and portray my risque ways to repay Rajay. Oh shit, the siren started going off right after I said that. Somebody dropped a dime and wants me to do my time for the rhyme crime. Little do they know that I'm an expert at pantomime and have a basket full of limes to throw at them should they try to climb the vines and can find me to resign. Okay, I'll get back to it now. 5.30 that morning, Dark Annie was having a chat with a brown-hatted gentleman sporting a dirty soot-covered coat. Who fucking... <laughs> Who let me have a podcast? Holy shit. <laughs> The brown-hatted gentleman wearing this dirty, soot-covered coat was probably also covered in horse poop somewhere. It was dirty there. He was standing out in front of 29 Hanbury Street while talking to Dark Annie. 
Elizabeth Long, whom was later a little bit short on detailed descriptions of either of those two, did however recognize a woman in the morgue later on as Annie Chapman after she'd been murdered. By whom, you ask? Perhaps the brown-hatted man could have had something to do with it. Merely an hour and a half after Elizabeth witnessed the two of them having a chat, John Davis, resident of 29 Hanbury Street, and distant ancestor of the lead singer of Corn, discovered her mutilated body in the backyard of the house by the fence. They're probably not actually related. Her body was later identified by her little brother Fountain Smith, that's an interesting name, and her funeral on September 14th, 1888, was held in very much the same manner as Polly's was, shrouded in mystery and obscurity. Speaking of which, these people all lived in an area called Spitalfields? And I think that's just a specific region of the Whitechapel district. I think it's kind of like neighborhoods in New York or the boroughs up there. Like, Hell's Kitchen is in Manhattan, which is part of New York City. I think Spitalfields is in the Whitechapel district, which is part of London. If you want to tell me if I'm right or wrong, Instagram at Second Self Podcast. But I'm pretty sure that's right. Next up, we have Elizabeth Stride, whom, much like the previous tomb, had a background mired in adversity and troublesome addictions. She immigrated to England from Sweden in 1866, and by 1877, she was separated from her then-husband, John Thomas Stride, and began running around with a man named Michael Kidney. I love these old names. Cue the downward spiral into alcoholism and likely casual prostitution, as she also took up a residence near one of Polly's communal homes over on, guess what, Flower in Dean Street. This one at address number 32. She had earned her bed money by around 6.30 on the evening of September 29th by cleaning a few rooms, then scurried off to the pub to enjoy a few pints before returning. Saturday night, she's got her bed money, time to party down and have some fun. She's just kind of, you know, hopping around from place to place, doing the pub crawl, seen by many different people in many different places, and eventually made her way over to Burner Street in the Commercial District. Around 12.30 a.m., she's seen in some sort of dispute with another man by Israel Schwartz, but he must have had a very New York mindset already because he saw the two arguing and went the other direction. That might be a domestic dispute between the two. Maybe they're arguing about where to go get a bite to eat. Either way, not my business, and he goes off along his way in the other direction. I probably would have done the same thing. It's weird, though. I, you know, for the most part, honestly couldn't care less what other people are doing as long as it doesn't hurt anybody, but unless it hurts me personally, um, I probably didn't see shit. <laughs> Fifteen minutes later, around 1 a.m., Louis Daimschultz pulls his horse-drawn wagon around the corner, but the horse refused to advance. It probably didn't want to walk through a mountain of horse poop. Or, more accurately, it could have been from what the driver saw. He could just barely make out some sort of dark figure on the ground, but couldn't make out any details until he approached with a lit match, which was not useful for more than just a couple of seconds. Twas very damp and heckin' windy in London, but he was able to decipher that it was a woman. Oh, shit. Lewis, thinking this could be his drunk wife, runs inside the club to go get some help. Inside the club, he finds his very much not-drunk wife in the kitchen, and then the returning party discovers the truth behind the body on the ground. Her throat had been cut, but not disemboweled like Polly and Annie, leaving many to believe that the killer had been interrupted. Once again, funeral arrangements were kept to nothing more than a whisper, garnering little attention from the press this time. Catherine Eddowes, another woman with an eerily similar background, is the next victim we're going to talk about. 
She and her soldier of an ex-husband, Thomas Conway, earned a meager living by selling chapbooks on the street. Think of it like buying a fire mixtape from a kid at the mall. Hey, you wanna buy my mixtape? There you are! Why have you been so quiet, dude? You forgot to write lines for me, and I wanted to see how long it would take for you to notice. Ah. Um. Well played, Alex. That's our co-host, everybody. His name is Alex. He is one of the voices in my head, but he occasionally makes it into the real world from time to time. Don't worry, he's harmless. Anyway, Catherine made her way over to the East End of London by 1880. She'd fallen into an alcoholic stupor which fueled the storms of domestic violence at home. Not sure which of those was the chicken or the egg, but by 81, Catherine and Thomas were split up, and she'd met a new man to keep her company, a man named John Kelly. They lived at Cooney's Lodging House on Flower and Dean, and after less than a profitable trip after a less than profitable trip to Kent, there it is, they returned back in Spitalfields on September 28th of 1888. Starting to see something here. The next day on Saturday the 29th, she set out to borrow money from her daughter for a night's lodging, but somewhere in the middle of all that ended up, quote, worse for drink, and being arrested for drunken disorderly conduct around 8 p.m. She was released around midnight after being deemed sober enough to walk back. At 1.35... She walks by three men named Joseph Lawind, Joseph Hyam Levy, and Harry Harris talking to a man near the entrance of Mitre Square, and at 1.45, ten minutes later, her mutilated body was discovered by a beat cop, Alfred Watkins. This is no longer elementary, my dear Watkins! Her throat had been slit, her abdomen disemboweled, and the killer had, direct quote from the source, removed and gone off with her uterus and left kidney. I also know that it's Watson, not Watkins. I also really love the subtle differences in sentence structure and speech patterns between American and British English. Removed and gone off with her uterus and left kidney. In America, you would just say, he took her organs and ran away, or something. It wouldn't sound nearly as um, cultured, I guess. The Edo's funeral was much more of a public spectacle, boasting around 500 people in attendance, including the sisters of the other murdered women. Harriet Jones, Emma Edo's, Eliza Gold, and Elizabeth Fisher her two nieces, and John Kelly. That was on October 8th of 1888. And I don't know if you caught that in the very brief timeline we actually have here, but the last two victims, Catherine Eddowes and Elizabeth Stride, were both killed within just a couple hours of each other. That is a ballsy move, Mr. The Ripper. And finally, we come to the last of the Ripper victims, Mary Kelly, if that is her real name. Seems to be some dispute in the veracity of what little is actually known about this woman. She was born in Ireland, popped over to Wales for a bit, then bounced around between London and France for a few years before finally settling in on the east end of Thrall Street in 86. The next year, she met her boyfriend, Joseph Barnett, and they would live together at a room at 13 Miller's Court, which was right around the corner from another familiar street, Dorset Street. Before we move on to Mary Kelly, though, whoever this was took a break for a little while there. There's a very brief cooldown period right here for like a month or six weeks or so. Interestingly, all of these women eventually lived on or near the exact same streets and all five of them suffered from a heavy alcohol addiction. Many of them beginning to spiral due to unforeseen circumstances in their own lives. Mary's spiral began after returning from France and failing to make a living at a fancy high-end brothel. That's what led her to the East End and eventually made her way back into prostitution to support herself, like so many others. Serial killers have this weird sixth sense where they can, like, instantly pick up on whatever energy their perfect victim gives off. And if you're targeting a bunch of unfortunate prostitutes, the place to go, I guess, would be wherever they congregate. 
Mary and Joseph got along well enough for a while until mid-88 when Mary had fallen behind on rent, owing the landlord nearly 30 shillings. So they split up, and the last time they'd see each other was November 8th. Then Mary, like the others, needed to earn a bed for the night, went out to literally go do her thing. Around 2 a.m. the morning of November 9th, a Mr. George Hutchinson is approached by Mary who was asking for the sixpence it would cost to get a bed, but he was also a little light in the pockets if you know what I mean. He, he just didn't have the money. <laughs> then approaching from the other direction, George notices a man tap Mary on the shoulder. They share a laugh and start walking off together back toward Miller's court, the laughter undoubtedly sparked by a transactional proposition. Score! I get laid and a bed to sleep it off in. Win-win! Except for two hours later, around 4 a.m., her body would also be discovered, but this time it was in her own room. Whoever the killer was left Mary Kelly in very much the same manner as the other victims. When, when the police arrived to investigate, Walter Dew said, There was little left of her, not much more than a skeleton. Okay, I've had enough wading through piles of horse shit and dirty overcoats. I'm going to bring myself back into the present day so we can talk about some theories. <laughs> One of the more prevailing theories is surrounding a character called Leather Apron, or his real name, John Pizer. A shadowy, gruesome figure in a blood-covered leather apron was seen walking around the streets on the night of Polly Nichols' murder. By September 1st, a reference to his presence had been made by the papers, and by the 5th, it was being reported by the Star in an all-too-common, by today's standards, matter of sensationalism. Check out some of these clickbait headlines from 130 years ago. Leather Apron, the only name linked with the Whitechapel murders, a noiseless midnight terror. And the strange character who prowls about Whitechapel after midnight. Universal fear among women. Slippered feet and a sharpened leather knife. Jesus, that last one sounds like one of my episode titles for this show. By the way, this one's probably going to be called The Unverifiable Canonosity of Jack the Ripper or something like that. Interestingly, there was a bloody leather apron found nearby the house on Hanbury after Annie Chapman had been murdered, but it was determined to belong to another resident inside the house and not related to the crime. On September 10th, the police finally arrested John Pizer on suspicion of being leather apron, but he turned out to be just some guy that had the unfortunate circumstance of being nearby when whomever the real color was took his victims. They searched his house, tested his clothes and work tools for blood, he was a shoe cobbler I think, but nothing was determined to be blood and he was ultimately let go, but that pesky court of public opinion wouldn't drop their scrutiny of him until many months later. By the way, much of this information I got from jacktheripper.org if you want to go read through some of this information. Whoever's in charge of that site is a goddamn hero and has done a fantastic job of organizing everything, so I wanted to make sure to give them the credit they deserve for putting what they found online. There's so many potential candidates for Jack the Ripper's identity that I'm just going to breeze through in list format. Montague John Druitt, Carl Feigenbaum, Aaron Kosminski, Francis Craig, Walter Sickert, Michael Ostrog, George Chapman, Louis Dimeschultz, Neil Cream, and Charles Cross, just to name a few. An interesting theme I noticed between the, quote, evidence presented for the potential suspects is that they all seem to have around the same level of believability. Each suspect I read about doesn't seem to be really any more likely than any of the others, given that, even among the agreed-upon evidence, there's still some disputes regarding authenticity. Ford's diary entries, unsubstantiated claims, and eyewitness testimony, which is historically known to be inaccurate anecdotal evidence in general, all get in the way and muddy the waters in trying to find a solid answer. They all kind of make 
a decent amount of sense in their own right. However, in reading about the potential suspects, I did come across a Jill the Ripper theory, which is my favorite one. It is just a theory, but I kind of like the idea of the real killer being a woman. The role of a midwife could fill in a lot of gaps. Contractions have never been known for their uh, punctuality or predictability, meaning that she could have been called to upon assist. She could have been called upon to assist with a delivery at literally any time of day. I cannot talk today. And being at least a little bit familiar with surgical tools and human anatomy, like a good midwife would be, could help support the theory that whoever the killer was had some degree of skill in medicine. There's also a ton of other letters and diary entries and eyewitness accounts and testimony and inquest hearings that I just didn't have time to really delve that deep into since I'm trying to keep this under an hour, but... You know, every time I read a new thing about the Ripper, I just end up having more questions. Really quickly, though, before I move on to the next bit, there are at least two other potential named victims from before Polly's murder. They are Emma Smith and Martha Tabram, a couple of local prostitutes. And Emma Smith, despite not technically being one of the Ripper victims, is the first name listed in the official Whitechapel murders file, so just take that for what it's worth. Now... I'd like to take some time to elaborate a little bit on how H.H. Holmes definitely wasn't Jack the Ripper. Firstly, the Ripper murders didn't start until August 7th, 1888, which was over a year into the construction of Holmes's quote, murder castle. That began in 1887, and I can't imagine that a lifelong grifter and con man would be able to step away from supervising the construction of a building he was trying to scam his way into earning for free for very long, let alone long enough to successfully navigate the probably unfamiliar to him streets of London and murder five people in the exact same way before escaping completely undetected. Besides that, it would take at least a month to arrive in England by boat, and international travel wasn't exactly as easy to do as it was today. Then if you take a look at the methodologies between the two killers, they are vastly different. Serial killers don't normally change the way they kill from victim to victim. There's a specific reason they kill the way they do. There's usually a moment that they're looking for during a murder that can only be found while killing in that fashion. The only point I'll concede to this theory is that between 88 and 91, while he was being sued for not paying the contractors, it's possible that he could have dipped out for a few months to dodge the police, and the timelines sort of match up, but there's so many more holes you could poke in that. Holmes was also a really common name back then, so any ship's records of Holmes could be literally anybody. Sure, Holmes was a medical doctor, which might help explain the missing organs, but a butcher could have also done that pretty effectively. They tend to know where shit is. Also, Holmes had money. Why the fuck would he bother going to a poor district of an overcrowded, filthy city in a country he'd never been to on a completely separate continent just to kill some prostitutes? He was in Chicago. He could have stayed there and done that. Or in any of the other eight states he lived in. Prostitutes are everywhere. And it would have been much cleaner and he wouldn't have been covered head to toe in soot and horse shit. Oh wait, that's kind of exactly what he did because H.H. Holmes wasn't Jack the goddamn Ripper! There, I said it. But before I move on to the Takeaway Advice Corner segment, there is one more extremely obscure potential suspect that I want to talk about for a quick second. This might actually be groundbreaking, but nobody else is privy to this information but me and I guess Alex over there. There's legend of a man in London around this time, a man that operated in the shadows and took pride in the cultivation of a particularly potent strain of sweet, sweet Mary Jane. He was a small-time grower, 
but he'd studied abroad in many different European countries and climates to figure out the best possible combination of sunlight to soil ratio to produce a strain that everybody could enjoy by mixing in a simple compost of eggshells, kidney beans, old fruit peels, and a little bit of his own blood. An unassuming man by the name of Jordy had created a new strain of weed that he called Smog Devil Kush. He'd present himself as a John and offer to share his joint with any takers, and in the haze of the heady brew, he'd make his first strike. The most amazing thing about this particular strain was that he'd found a way to make it nearly undetectable by any of the various methods for determining toxicology back then, so makes it really difficult to verify the authenticity of this claim, but rest assured, you can sleep easy tonight, and you don't have to worry about a soot-covered pothead breaking into your home because almost none of that is true. I just wanted to use a shout-out to Jordy as a plainless segue into the man out of the main story. He's been keeping this show alive in Oklahoma along with my mom, so big thanks for me for listening. Super appreciate you, brother. Okay, so here's my biggest takeaway from reading about Jack the Ripper. Based on the locations that all the bodies were found and where all the ladies lived, Whoever the killer was was probably close to that, probably chose that location for a reason. There was lots of potential victims, places to hide, a crowd to blend into. London was crowded AF, and there's only so many outfits to choose from, so anybody could have disappeared into the crowd. I don't think the Ripper lived in the area, though, from what I can recall from other killers that I've read about. They don't tend to hunt near the places they, I mean, near the places they live, but they don't hunt in the, like, it's close, but not exactly where they live, but you know, he probably lived in London somewhere, or she, whomever. The other thing I realized is that no matter how futile it seems to try to solve this case, which is not what I'm trying to do here at all, connecting dots for something like this is always fun. You know, I gotta bring up It's Always Sunny again for this. You know, Jack the Ripper started to feel like Charlie in the mailroom trying to figure out who Pepe Sylvia is. Let's talk about the letters, guys, please. I've been dying to talk to you about the letters all day with Jack the Ripper. This name keeps coming up over and over again. Jack the Ripper. Every day I get another from Jack the Ripper. I got fucking boxes full of Jack the Ripper. <laughs> all right, that's going to be enough Jack the Ripper for me for a while. That's all I got for you guys today. If you like that story, or if you just like how I tell stories, or if you for some reason like the periodic interrupting meows of my needy goddamn cat, follow this show on iTunes or wherever you're listening on and maybe go review me on iTunes. Those things seem to be an important part of improving a show's discoverability, so help me out there, would you? By the way, I am now past my goal of hitting 10 reviews, so now we got to figure out a way to get up to 20. If, you know, if only there was a way for nine more people to do something about that. Yeah, I hear you over there. Calm down. You could also check the description for the sources I used if you want to read what I read. There's also a link in there to PayPal if you really want to help me, but... Beyond that, I don't have much else to tell you today. We have two more 19th century stories for me to go over this month, so I'm off to go find those. Wish me luck in the rabbit hole, everybody. Make smart choices, stay kind, and I'll see you next week. Bye.